The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 9, 2-7. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since he was terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the word of the Lord. If you don't have your Bible out, if you'll take your Bible out and turn to Mark chapter 9, the gospel of Mark chapter 9. So I went snorkeling for the first time this past summer. It took me a few minutes to get comfortable, but I really enjoyed it. I was able to go a few different times. The last time was the least enjoyable. And I think that's because I kept getting water in my mouth. Not a lot of water, but just enough to be annoying, to make it unpleasant. I don't know the last time you swallowed salt water, right? But it's, it's not enjoyable. I mean, we probably all had that experience when we were a kid. You know, you jump into a pool and your mouth is open and you don't do it intentionally, but you swallow some of the pool or some of the ocean and you start gagging a little bit, right? It's, it's not just unpleasant. In fact, when you're a kid, it's a little scary because when we swallow that water, we can't swallow air. The one goes in, displaces the other, so we begin to choke and, and, and we can't catch our breath. And so we're sort of gasping and sometimes we're getting, we're getting a little fearful, a little anxious about will we ever be able to catch our breath. That's a bit what it's like to live in a world that doesn't listen to God. Right? Without meaning to, we constantly swallow the water of the word the world. Each swallow, what it does is it keeps us from breathing in the air that we really need to live, the air that we need to thrive in the world that God has created. So we, we take in what is toxic instead of taking in what is nutritious for our souls. Let me, let me just give you an example of what I mean. Just this week, Don and I were talking about premarital counseling, the counseling we offer couples before they get married just to help them lay a good foundation. And Don was telling me how he always begins the, the first meeting with the question, like, he asked them, where did you learn what marriage looks like? Right, so two people about to get married, where did you learn what marriage looks like? And the common answers are, you know, from our parents, we saw our parents' marriage, uh, from the Bible, from movies and TV shows that portray marriage, from music, maybe, maybe they've even read a book or two or read an article in a magazine, and what Don's trying to get them to see is that they have subconsciously swallowed all of these different views of marriage. How did you get your values? What are all the things that you have swallowed that shape how you think about things? What, what, what are all the things you've swallowed that shape how you think about the world and how you think about yourself? how you think about your own life, how you think about your goals and what you want to accomplish, how you decide what matters to you. See, we, we really don't know what all has shaped our thinking, but here's what we do know. 
that our values have been in part, at least in part, if not primarily shaped by the world we live in. Right? None of us are immune from all of these outside influences that we just sort of swallow them without thinking and we don't realize the damage they do. So in our last chapter, we saw how Jesus began to outline how if we follow him, it changes our entire value system. He says, instead of living for ourselves, we'll deny ourselves even to the point of death. Instead of trying to gain everything we think we want, we'll instead leave it all to follow him. Well, here in chapter 9, we see how Jesus is king and life in his kingdom is demonstrated by a new radically different set of values. It's different from the values that we see embraced and encouraged by earthly kings and kingdoms. So here, here's what I want to challenge you to do that as we walk through this chapter this morning, that you, you try to honestly evaluate yourself. Not, not just what, what is your value, but what it is that shapes your values. See, we've become so accustomed to choking on the water of this world that we no longer notice how weak it makes us. So I think of many Christian students here whose, whose idea of body image comes from Instagram or TikTok instead of from the one who created them to be unique. Or the Christian businessmen here who who thinks their value actually comes from what a report says at the end of the month, not from the one who died to redeem them. Or the distracted Christian who's so worried that they're losing their rights that they don't remember that Jesus calls them to give up their rights in order to serve others. Like brothers and sisters, if we belong to Jesus, what it means is that we have been transferred from a kingdom that we can see to an unseen kingdom, his kingdom. And as citizens of his kingdom, we live by a distinct set of values. But we must realize that we have sipped day after day certain values from the moment we first were born And so Jesus here is calling us to a radically new, radically different kind of life, a life which embraces a set of values that will not make sense to those who don't know Jesus. T.S. Eliot wrote, in a world of fugitives, the person taking the opposite direction will appear to be running away. You see, the path of Jesus leads upstream. It leads against the current of the culture, and therefore it will be mocked and misunderstood by many. But it's the only path that leads to life. So before we look at the values that characterize life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, I want you to first see the glory of the kingdom. Okay, the glory of the kingdom. Chapter 9 begins with an event we just read it. It's commonly called the transfiguration of Jesus. It's an event that simultaneously looks back and looks forward. It looks back to the glory of Jesus before the world began, and it looks ahead to how glorious his kingdom will be, the kingdom that awaits for those who follow him. So it looks back and forward simultaneously. Let's look at it again in verse 2. It says, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no laundry on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses. They were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, Moses, Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. 
cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So there are a number of details in this passage which are designed to help us look back in history to a particular point in time where God met with Moses on Mount Sinai. So in Exodus 24, we find this account of Moses hand-selecting a few leaders to walk up Mount Sinai. At the top of the mountain, we're told that Moses waited there for six days, very, the same amount of time that's mentioned here. And, and while he waited there, at the end of those six days, God's glory descended on the top of the mountain like a cloud. There Moses received the Ten Commandments, and it says when Moses descended the mountain and, and, and regathered with the nation of Israel, his face shone with a radiant light. And so we see here there are a lot of similarities between what took place on that Mount Sinai with Moses and what takes place with Jesus on this mountain. But there are some important differences. You see, the, the face of Moses reflected the glory of God. So, sort of like the moon reflecting the sun. The, the moon itself produces no light, right? The, the sun, it, it produces a light which reflects off the moon. And that's sort of what happened with Moses. There he is on the mountain, the glory of God, so bright and dazzling, it, it shines and he walks down the mountain and he shines with reflected glory, reflected light. But see, Something different happens with Jesus on that mountain. The dazzling light does not reflect from somewhere else off him. It actually shines out of him like from the sun. Moses reflects the glory of God. Jesus produces it. He displays it. He is the source of the blinding light. Not only that, but you have Moses here, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet, standing next, being called to serve Jesus. And it's a, a picture to all of those who grow, grew up reading the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, that all of it was leading to this point, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That he embodies all that was written by God in the Old Testament. And so these event, this event here. It's trying to show us that Jesus, he's more than a great leader like Moses, that he's God himself, that glory belongs to him. And just for a moment, it's like he, he peels back his humanity and displays a, a fraction of his glory to his disciples. And so this, this transfiguration looks back to Mount Sinai to teach us that he is, Jesus is not a new Moses, he's actually God himself, that God has taken on human flesh, that he is the rightful sovereign of heaven and earth. But it also looks ahead to, to the day when the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ is established throughout all he has made. So I want you to think about those disciples. They're, they're chosen by Jesus and they walk up on the mountain. Now, I, I don't do a lot of hiking, but if you hike up a mountain, why are you doing that? That's a good question. That's why I don't. I can't answer that. No, you do it for one reason, right? You're getting up there and you're going to see something, aren't you? You're going to look and you're going to see something amazing. And so the disciples walk up this mountain with an expectation they're going to see something amazing, but they see something far greater than they expected, right? The, the sweeping vistas are nothing compared to the glory of Jesus. His, notice this, his glory shines through so in, in, in such a 
powerful way that they, they don't actually describe him. Did you notice this? It's as if there are no fitting words to describe Jesus. All that are described here are his clothes. His clothes are so blindingly white that the only way to describe them is by noting that they're beyond what humans can produce. It's as if there are no words in the human language to describe the glory of Jesus. All he can say is the robes themselves have changed. And and, and this is a brief moment where the disciples, they get to see what will one day be true. If Jesus is so glorious that his mere presence transforms these dirty robes into dazzling garments, what will he do to those who follow him? You see, notice it says, it doesn't say these everyday garments are cleaned. It actually says they glow with a wholeness and beauty that no amount of human effort could produce. If this transformation happens to laundry, what will happen one day to everything else? That's what it's showing us. If this type of transformation, the presence of Jesus in his unveiled glory, does this to laundry, then it will one day do it to everything. One day those who are made in his image, who are redeemed by his blood, are going to be transformed in a far more spectacular way than these robes. See, sometimes we forget that there is a world beyond what our eyes can perceive. This world that we live in is far more complex than we think about on a daily basis. I want you to consider all of the discoveries that are made by microscopes and telescopes. Right? All of those things existed before there was a way for human beings to see them. Right? Before human beings could see them, there was a microscopic world that existed and there was a cosmic world. All of it was there. We, we were just ignorant of it. And so the disciples here are getting a glimpse of a world that exists beyond the naked eye and it's no less real because it's invisible. See, what the disciples witness is a taste of what will one day come to pass. One pastor wrote, he said that when the king returns, he's going to recreate our suffering world as a new earth where there's no pain, no boredom, no depression, Every color will be brighter, every aroma richer, every taste more mouth-watering, every sunset more dramatic. In his nuclear-powered presence, we will finally feel fully alive. You see, the difference between what now is and what will one day be when the king is fully unveiled is the difference between looking at a piece of sheet music and listening to the London Philharmonic Orchestra playing that same song. Jesus was allowing his disciples to see for a moment a type of dazzling brilliance that will one day characterize every individual piece of his kingdom, including his own people. But notice the disciples, they not only see Jesus, but they see Moses and Elijah standing with them. How do they know these two men are Moses and Elijah? There's no Wikipedia. Moses didn't have Instagram. How do they recognize them? (coughs) Excuse me. We're not told. 
But I wonder if after we die and we're united with Jesus, after he makes us whole, we become so perfectly ourselves that it's obvious who we are even to those who don't know us. See, right now, our hearts are so divided, our, our souls are shattered, our self is, we're struggling with even who we are, right? We struggle with our own identity, like who am I? Who am I really? But, but Jesus makes us whole, and once he makes us whole, our identity is going to be so completely restored that we will, for the first time, fully embody who we are. Our identity is going to be so complete, so we'll so fully image Jesus Christ in the unique way he made each of us to do so that we're instantly recognizable. Like our full, true selves revealed for the first time. Now, having seen all this, it's no surprise that Peter wants to stay here on the mountain in verse 5, right? Wouldn't you? But God has different plans. From heaven thunders a voice. This is my beloved son, verse 7. Listen to him. The Messiah is the Son of God. Our King is divine. And the kingdom is known by one thing, which is the word of the King. All that matters is what he says. I mean, isn't that a relief? Isn't that a relief that it's all that matters? That God is not dependent on you coming up with a good idea? I was going to call this sermon, Shut Up and Listen to Jesus, but I was told I shouldn't use shut up in a sermon, so I'm not calling it that. But listen, this takes the pressure off us. Like, it's not up to you to figure out what to do. The world is complex, and it's scary, and there's a lot of weighty decisions, and we're not sure what to do. And here's the thing, it's not all dependent on you. God is telling us, this is what he wants us to do. Stop talking, Peter, and listen to the king. Listen to him. Do what he says, that's it. And just like that, the unveiled glory of the king and the kingdom are hidden again in verse 8. And so Peter, James, and John with Jesus, they walk back down the mountain. They don't know what to say. What what do you say after something like this? And so they begin to ask him about Elijah in verse 11. Because they, they know that the Old Testament ends Malachi with the prophet Malachi saying before God can restore everything that Elijah must come. So they're asking about that and having just seen him. And Jesus in verse 13 assures them that Elijah did come in, in the, 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 the preaching of John the Baptist, Elijah's spirit was there with him. But what happened is people didn't listen to him. In fact, they killed John the Baptist. Well, as Jesus and his disciples re-enter the city, they notice there's a large, large crowd which has surrounded his disciples who are left down there, who seem to be in this heated argument with some of the religious leaders. And beginning with this event, we see the values of the kingdom. Now, this disagreement centers on the disciples' inability to heal a demon-possessed child. So a father had brought his child who's possessed with a demon to the disciples saying like, I've heard you guys can help heal him because you're followers of Jesus and they are unable to help him. They've failed. And this leads to the first kingdom value, power through faith. Power through faith. So there's a war going on we can't see. It's a battle between Satan and the forces of evil and 
God and his kingdom and his king, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus shows up, we, we've talked about this in Mark, right? How he, he keeps casting out demons because he's demonstrating that he has, he has kicked Satan out. Satan has no power here, that he's the true king. And so he's demonstrating his victory over Satan and his schemes. But I want you to notice here that all Satan wants to do is destroy. That's all he wants to do. Satan doesn't build anything, he just destroys it. And so he wants to destroy this child. And so he, there's this heart-wrenching description of this child who's, who's convulsing, seizures, he's mute. Like all of this because Satan is intent on destroying what God has done. So here are the disciples. They're called by Jesus. He's enlisted them into his service. There's, there's the arch enemy and his forces How are we, as God's people, as followers of Jesus, supposed to stand against evil? Well, it's not in our strength. The disciples, they try to drive out the demon, we're told in verse 18, but they fail. They're unable to do so. And here's the reason they failed, because... They were trusting themselves instead of trusting Jesus. Jesus makes this point in verse 19 when he says he calls them faithless. You see, a lot of times we think our failure to do what's right, our failure to be victorious, our our failure just in all these areas is due primarily to a lack of effort on our part or a lack of willpower. So we think things like this. I just need need to get more serious about it. I need to try harder. I need to, I've got to do my best. Like next time, I'll be more disciplined. But notice that's not the issue. Jesus doesn't say you guys should have tried harder. He says, he rebukes them, not for their weakness, but for their lack of faith. So in contrast to the disciples, we see the boy's father demonstrates faith in Jesus. Jesus says in verse 23 that anyone, anything is possible for the one who trusts him. And so the boy's father cries out in verse 24. He says, I do believe. Help, please help me with my unbelief. Now that doesn't at first sound like a great statement of faith, but it is. Let me show you why. So when I was young, I wasn't really afraid of heights. And so if you'd seen young Josh, you might see him climbing on things, right? Climbing on trees, climbing on like old bridges, climbing on things. And if you were observing me, you, you might think, your observation or your deduction might be, well, clearly Josh is, he's, he has great faith in the structural integrity of that object because he's climbing it without any fear, right? That tree that looks like it's about to fall over, Josh clearly knows that thing will hold him up. That's why he's climbing it. That bridge, which looks like it's about to collapse, He knows, he's confident it will hold him up, that's why he's climbing it, and you would have been dead wrong. Because I wasn't trusting in the integrity of the bridge, I was trusting in myself. I was young and I was stupid, and like, I'm going to climb it, and if something happens, I'm sure I'll be okay. I'll catch myself. I'll be fine. Now, a a few weeks ago, uh, I went on a college visit to Liberty University, and they have a big tower I'm sure it's been engineered correctly. I'm sure it's been inspected, all those things. And people wanted to go see the campus from the tower. I was not one of those people, but I went anyway, rode up the elevator. I don't know how many, like a thousand floors, I think it was, maybe 3,000. It was really high. And the elevator stopped and it was time to get off. And I slowly and hesitantly got off and I didn't go to the edge, but I went out a little ways. Like I, I, I now fear heights. 
And so if you'd, you'd seen that, you might say Josh doesn't have a lot of faith in the structural integrity of this tower. Look at him. Look how he's holding on. and Look how hesitant he is. He, he doesn't trust it. And I would say you were dead wrong. That the only reason I stepped out of that elevator at all is because I had a complete 100% faith that that thing wasn't going to fall. You know, sometimes we confuse self-confidence and self-assurance, even youthful arrogance with faith. But faith often looks like the terrified person who moves forward for only one reason, that they are 100% convinced that Jesus can hold them. An old evangelist, D.L. Moody, said there are three kinds of faith. He says there is struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming. Clinging faith, like a man hanging on to the side of a boat and resting faith, like a man safely within the boat, able to reach out and help others in. You see, the kingdom of God is not seen in self-confident men and women building great things in their own faith. The kingdom of God is seen in weak men and women who cling to Jesus. This is the reason why at the end of this account, verse 29, the disciples are like, why couldn't we drive this demon out? And Jesus says, because you failed to pray. Power comes through faith, and prayer is faith in action. As if Jesus was saying, because you didn't ask me. Power through faith. The second kingdom value is victory through death. Victory through death. This is the second three times in chapters 8 through 10 that Jesus will make it clear to the disciples that he must die. Look at verse 31. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, everyone assumed the messianic king, the long-awaited deliverer, would be victorious. Right? That's why they were waiting for him. That's why they were hoping that someone would come to solve this problem. And what they did not understand was how he would achieve his victory that the Messiah would offer himself as a sacrifice in the place of sinners, that he would hang on the cross so that your sin and mine could be paid for, that he would die so that we might live. See, at this point, the disciples have no category for a suffering king. Listen, who can blame them? I don't know if you've watched any March Madness over the past few weeks. Maybe some of you yawning were up too late watching it last night. Now, if it... Just, just, just kidding. No one's yawning. You're all wide awake. I can see it. But if you watch, do you, I don't have any category for a basketball team that, that like hands the ball to the other team every time. That's, I would say like, you're not going to win if you do that. If you get the ball and you just, here you go, here you go. Like, there's no way victory comes through surrender. And, and yet this is exactly what Jesus is saying This is why Jesus came, why God entered humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. He became flesh so he could live a perfect life so that he could die. Die in the place of sinful creatures. Friends, Jesus surrendered his own life in your place so that you could live with him forever. He took your punishment so that 
you could be forgiven of your sin and be restored into a right relationship with the one who created you. Have you received his gift? Have you been forgiven of your sin? Now this title, Son of Man, it suggests both victory and lowliness. Jesus is truly a son of man. He humbled himself to become a man just like you and me so that he could die. But he is the son of man from Daniel 7 who will be given all authority to reign over God's creation. He is victorious, but his victory comes through death. Here's the third value of the kingdom. Greatness through humility. Greatness through humility. So in verses 33 and 34, Immediately after Jesus talks about how he needs to die so to gain the victory, rise from the dead so that his disciples can live, his disciples start arguing about who's the greatest and who will be the greatest of them. Now Jesus asks them about it, and we're not surprised they're ashamed that they were talking about this. And Jesus uses their argument to teach them an important lesson about true greatness. That true greatness does not come from wealth or reputation, or influenced. True greatness is demonstrated by serving others, especially those who cannot return anything to you, to serve in ways unnoticed by so many. Look at verse 35. It says, sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. See, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, Greatness is displayed by humbly serving those in need, especially those who can't repay you. So Jesus, in verse 37, he invites a child to come to him. So a little child, he comes and Jesus hugs this little child. And he says, tells the disciples, you need to welcome children. Now, we love children here. But children, they, they, they don't do anything for you, right? They take things from you your youth, your life, your resources, and they give nothing back, humanly speaking. Like, here's what a parent is. Like, literally burn your money and get, don't even get a thank you for it, right? Nothing in return. They can do nothing back, give you nothing back. And Jesus says, when you welcome someone who can do nothing for you, who can't repay you in any way, you're actually welcoming me. You know, if we understood the values of the kingdom, then the most menial task in the church, the ones most degrading, would have a waiting list. This is one reason I think every member should serve in children's ministry. Now listen, I don't, I don't even know if we have openings. I didn't ask Jeff if we do. So this isn't a recruiting speech. But if we understand the way of Jesus, then why would all of us not sign up to serve in a way that is one of the most menial ways? I mean, I, I think nothing shows that someone gets the way of Jesus more than when they leave their, their successful position in their company on a Friday night and on Sunday morning they're crawling around on a dirty middle school floor with some toddlers. Like, that person gets Jesus. They get the way of Jesus. When we serve the smallest and weakest members of our body, we reveal that we understand what it means to follow Jesus. We don't strategically serve those who can return the favor. 
you know, in the kingdoms of this world, greatness is restricted to a choice few. Like, there's only a few people who can be rich, only a few people who can be powerful, only a few people who can be famous and influential. I mean, think of the, the hundreds of millions of YouTube videos and only a handful are, are widely watched and spread. Like, that's how it is. It's, greatness is restricted in the kingdoms of this world. It's restricted to a, a choice select few. But in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we can all be great. Because there are unlimited ways for us to serve those who can't return the favor. How are you serving in the spirit of Jesus? Whose needs are you putting before your own? I want to speak to the students and children for just a moment. You're not too young to serve in this way. Like find a way to serve and make it a part of your life. That they... You won't go through even a period of your life where you're not intentionally serving other people. Like this is key to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is we serve others. So start now. Make this a habit. Ask your parents, ask a reborn leader, like how can I serve others? And, and then stick to it. Even on the days you don't feel like it. Now we see the disciples, they still don't understand this value because of what happens next. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Like, whoever this person was, they weren't part of the inner circle. How dare they try to perform a miracle in Jesus' name? See, the disciples are still worried about being the greatest. Like, who is this guy? How dare he? He's not one of us. What right does he have to serve Jesus and help others? See, whenever our concern is driven by our reputation, by what others might think or say about us, whenever we think in order to be important, to be great, we've got to be successful and we've got to be better than other people. We've got to be special. We've forgotten like, what it really means to follow Jesus. And Jesus reminds them that what matters is whether or not a person serves him. If, if a person serves him, if the person serves him, then even the smallest tasks are eternally important. Look what he says in verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. It's not what you accomplish that makes you great in the kingdom of Jesus. It's who you serve. Brothers and sisters, your small, unseen acts of kindness are greater than presidential speeches. Diane sitting at the bedside of Judy as she died is more significant than Diane sitting on the Supreme Court. Bruce driving a refugee to a doctor's appointment means more than Bruce driving an invading army out of a city. Jesus doesn't normally ask his people to do what society considers great things. Jesus calls us to do what he considers great, which is to humbly serve those who cannot repay us. Listen, I, I want to encourage you to do great things. Take someone a meal. Give someone a ride. Watch someone's children Mow someone's lawn. Meet someone for coffee. Pray for someone's needs. 
carry someone boxes. Like these small, unnoticed, unseen things. No, they are noticed. They're noticed by Jesus. That's what he's saying. When you serve those who can't repay you and no one else sees it, I see it and I never forget it. What others cannot see, Jesus never misses. The final verses show us the entrance to the kingdom. So Jesus ends with some warnings, and these warnings all make the same point. Nothing is more important than entering the kingdom of God. This is it. Nothing at all. Don't let anything keep you from entering, and make sure you don't hinder someone else from entering. Look at verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Here's one of the reasons Jesus got angry with the religious leaders, because their rules and their intimidation kept people from coming to God for forgiveness of sin. Since entering the kingdom of God is the single most important thing someone can do, keeping them from it is worthy of the harshest judgment. So a millstone. Hundreds to thousands of pounds. It's hung around your neck. Be tossed into a sea. And he says, that's better than keeping someone from Jesus. So we must ask this weighty question. Could the way you treat people at home or work discourage them from coming to Jesus? Could the values you display discourage them from coming. But it's not just others that we can keep from coming, it's ourselves. Jesus says entering the kingdom is worth cutting off your hands, your foot, or gouging your eye out. He's not telling us to harm our bodies. He's saying that the kingdom of God is worth giving up whatever makes us feel powerful and important. See, without your hands, without your foot, without an eye, you will feel powerless. Not only feel powerless, you will probably feel like people are looking down on you. And so Jesus is saying here, don't let your perceived independence, your power, your reputation, what other people might say about you, don't let any of that keep you from following me. You see, the alternative to the kingdom of God is judgment by God, which Jesus describes as Gehenna, a valley outside Jerusalem where Trash and bodies were burned all day long. Eternal conscious torment for rejecting Jesus as Lord and rebelling against the creator of the universe. Now Jesus is not saying, listen, that we make it to heaven by outward acts like cutting off our hands or plucking out our eye. Let me just say, any type of self-mutilation like cutting is unhealthy. And so, so if for, that's a struggle you have and you hear these verses, I, I just want you to know that we're here to help. Like we're here to help. There's a type of healing that Jesus can bring a wholeness. And if so, if you're struggling with something like that, like talk, talk to someone before you leave. Talk to me. What I'd, I'd like to do is help you. Like Jesus can bring healing to whatever the struggles you face are. But Jesus' point here is that the quest for honor and prestige, the quest for respect and reputation, the quest for power and influence has kept many from the kingdom. 
If anything would keep you from the kingdom, get rid of it. No matter how radical it might be, nothing is worth missing out on the glory and beauty of the kingdom of God when it is fully unveiled at the return of Jesus. And Jesus ends this section with a metaphor about salt. Verse 50, he says, salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? You can't season salt. Salt is the seasoning. Salt is either salt or it's not salt. That's the point he's asking. You can't change salt. Salt is salt. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt is salty. That's what it is. It's distinctive. And he's saying here his people are distinctive like salt. Why? Because the king has set us free through his death and resurrection. Because he is changing our values to match his. We have a distinctiveness that cannot be manufactured. Right? It's his calling of us, not our effort, that makes us distinct. So brothers and sisters... Is there a distinctiveness to how you live? A distinctiveness to how you talk, to how you act, to what you value? One certain indicator of kingdom values is peace with other people. We are not people of conflict. We are people of peace. You see, something of the glory of our King resides in us now through His Spirit and it comes out in peace with others. Not only that, but as we humbly serve people, people will generally not be angry. If you humbly serve them, if you look for ways to bless them, rarely are they angry. Sometimes it happens. But what happens then? Well, we continue to serve them. And we meet their anger or their frustration with grace and kindness. Are you living at peace with others? Or is your pride keeping you from serving people in the name of Jesus? So church, we are called to distinctive Christian living. We need to stop swallowing the water of this world. We need to spit it out where we have taken it in. And we need to start listening to the word of our King. As the Father said, this is my Son Listen to him. Let's listen this week. Father, will you help us listen to Jesus? Will you help us listen to what he says and recognize that this is the way to live? It is the way to life. It is the way to wholeness and healing and restoration. That it is, this is it. We listen to the king. We embrace his values as he changes our heart to be like him. So Lord, I pray that you help us this week to ignore all of the other voices, ignore all the other influences which might shape us, and listen intently to the word of the King. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.